and it's been that way for all the time that I've known him. David and I went to graduate school together at Abilene Christian University. We had carols that weren't very far apart. We enjoyed that fellowship. If you were here the last couple of days, you would have heard me talk about the fact that there were two orange Volkswagens on the campus of Abilene Christian University. David had one, and I had one. Mine was a super beetle. His was only a beetle. Jacob. The Super Beetles had big orange taillights and a dashboard. Okay? His had almost no dashboard and small taillights. His was a year older than than mine was. Okay? Jacob. (laughs) It is really a blessing to have David here. He is a student of scripture. He's a student of preaching. He loves God. He loves the church. If you've heard his story this weekend, you've been blessed by that. David and I were sitting at lunch yesterday in Banff as I was showing him our beautiful part of the world. And he looked at me and he said, it's amazing to me the similarities of our stories. I, you know, he said, the more we talk, the more we have in common. And that's exactly true. I, and I was struck by it as well and, and kind of said, wow, you're, isn't that so right? David and I have really similar stories in so many ways, but he's a way better preacher. And so you're going to be blessed. David, please come up. And bless us today, my friend. I've already prayed for you once, and I think it was a good one. And so we'll let it go. Okay. Uh, what a delight uh, to be with the Carter family. Down in Nashville, where I'm at, uh, there, there's a, a, people talk about the Carter family, uh, and they do music real well. Uh, but this Carter family uh, does life uh, a whole lot better. Uh, I've been uh, treated like a, a royal guest. Uh, I, I wish I uh, had a... Um, I didn't bring a camera along, and I was aware of the need for a camera, especially yesterday when Kelly has graciously taken me to Banff. And we go up on the gondola, and we see this just so beautiful. It's just stunningly beautiful. Uh, halfway through the uh, the songs, I thought... That's where they got the pictures, all those beautiful pictures that everybody across the world sees, you know, in the background of the songs. It's your backyard. (laughs) Somebody came out out with a camera and took pictures of your backyard, and there it is up on the screen. And I thought, I wish, I I, I want to take a picture in my mind. And then off to Lake Louise, and it's got its own rare beauty. But I wish I had a camera this morning, before the children left, to have a picture of you. Such a diverse congregation, people from all parts of the world who are gathered here to worship God together. I come from the United States, and we specialize in segregation, uh, but to be at a place like this, this is beautiful. You're absolutely beautiful. Not as beautiful as Lake Louise, but, but you're beautiful. It's been my honor, really, it's been my honor to be with you this week. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke or just listen. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, began to grumble, saying, This man 
receives sinners and he eats with them. And so Jesus told them these parables. I continue the reading at verse 11. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And so the father divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey into a far country where he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in real need. And so he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of the country who sent him out into the field to feed the swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. And so he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but here I am dying with hunger? Hmm. I'm going to get up and go to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion for him, and he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quick! Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, but he's alive. He was lost and he's been found. And they begin to be merry. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing And when he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be, servant said, Oh, your brother, he's come home. And your father, he's killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. And the brother became angry. And he wasn't willing to go in. And so his father came out and began to entreat him. But he answered his father, he said, Look! For so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. But you've never given me a a meal like this that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who's devoured your wealth with, with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him? And the father said, My son... You've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for your brother. We thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost. We found him. And that's where the story ends, right there. I've been thinking recently about we about how we read the Bible. And I got to thinking about my first memories of 
reading the Bible. And one of my early memories of reading the Bible or observing how people read the Bible came on Christmas Day, 1964. On Christmas Day, my mother would prepare a meal for the entire extended family. And on Christmas Day, 1964, they all arrived. There was Grandpa and Grandma, the lumbering Aunt Arlene, the nervous Aunt Gladdy, my older cousins, and my Uncle Carol. Uncle Carol, a man whom no one would ever describe as spiritual. He came and he sat down in my father's blue chair and he pulled out his Salem menthols and he lit up a cigarette and he received his first glass of Christmas wine. And he began then his banter, telling us that God wants us to drink wine, he said. He is the same Uncle Carol who once declared that Moses was, was the greatest of all the apostles. He told us once that God told him that he would live to be 80 years old. God told you, Uncle Carol? Yes, he said, it's in the Bible. You should look it up. And all of Uncle Carol's claims were beyond my reach to dispute until that day, Christmas Day, 1964, when Uncle Carol, sipping his Christmas wine in, a, in the midst of a lengthy monologue, told us that James was in the Old Testament. And I stopped pushing my little Tonka truck there on the carpet, and I looked up and I said, Oh no, Uncle Carol, I said, James isn't in the Old Testament. James is in the New Testament. And he said, I'll bet you that James is in the Old Testament. Four bits says that James is in the Old Testament. And so I leaped to my feet and I raced to my room and I retrieved the Bible that I'd received from the Sunday school class promotion. And I ran out and I opened it up to the table of contents and I pointed, New Testament, James. And Uncle Carol said, well, looks like Uncle Carol was wrong. Now, how much did we bet? How much do I owe you? And he opened up his little black coin purse and he pulled out two quarters and he handed them to me. And during dinner, right as he was passing the scalloped potatoes and ham, deep into his third glass of Mogan David. He used a phrase that I'd never heard before. He said, filthy lucre. And when he said that phrase, he glanced at me and he said, that's in the Bible too, David. Why don't you go look that up? <laughs> and it was at that moment, at that very moment, on Christmas Day, 1964, that I first understood that some people will, more, will use Scripture for their own purpose than they will to allow God to shape them for His purpose. I don't know if you've figured it out yet, but I wasn't raised in the churches of Christ. <laughs> and while I was prepared for the fast-breaking Bible curveballs that would come my way from Uncle Carol... I wasn't ready for the spike-high slides that came during my first year of ministry when questions of Bible translations arose. 
I was naive to the task, so I took on the challenge. And during a summer heat wave in the state of Washington, in a building without air conditioning, with the windows sealed shut by years of painting, on successive sultry Sunday evenings, I rolled up my sleeves and I rolled out the overhead projector and I began to translate the Hebrew and the Greek before a dazed congregation. And as I was concluding this two-part series, now declaring which version was most accurate, and now claiming which translation was most readable, and in both cases or in neither case did the King James make the cut, I was still speaking when a man in the middle of the auditorium rose to his feet and began to shout, It was Brother Hardin, and Brother Hardin was shouting, We don't need a Philadelphia lawyer to tell us! And even though I'd never been to Philadelphia, and though I didn't aspire to be a lawyer, I could see how red was his face and how violently he was moving his arms. And so I decided to quit talking. And for what seemed like 30 minutes, but was probably no more than 30 seconds of tirade, an elder in the third pew nudged the song leader in the second pew who stood and sang the song of invitation, Give us the Bible, law and love abiding. And we drowned out the irate Brother Hardin. And after services in the foyer, This young preacher seeking solace, looking for comfort, I approached a new friend who was a lifelong member of the congregation, and I said, what would you think of all that? (laughs) And he said, all that Hebrew and Greek went right over my head, he said. But I sure do admire a man who has the courage to stand up for what he believes and speak his mind like Brother Hardin. (laughs) And I knew then that I would be in for a life of reconciliation. This has been my life's dilemma, this reconciling these two worlds, the world that I came from and the world that I entered, sending me back and again and again, as if for the first time, to the words and the visions that are set forth in Scripture. My mother is no longer in the kitchen cooking. Uncle Carol is long gone, and Brother Hardin moved on a decade or two ago. Perhaps you never met them. Or maybe you've seen them in new and challenging ways. I thought of them when I read this text from Luke chapter 15. People these days are talking about biblical illiteracy and worrying over it. They say our churches don't know the Bible like they used to. Kids coming up don't know the Bible like we used to. But I don't know that it's so much a case of biblical illiteracy that the church is suffering from. It seems to me that there's a lot of Bible awareness around. Brother Hardin had it. 
Uncle Carol had it in his own way, and you even see it when you open the newspaper if you still get them here in Calgary. They're fading out, but the ones that still survive, and you can see it on the Internet, have little comics, cartoons. And in those cartoons or comics on Sunday morning and Thursday afternoon and on the Internet appear these cartoons like Farside and Lumpy Gravy and Non Sequitur and that bunch. And Bible characters appear in these comics. Sure enough, top five appearances are by Noah, Jonah, Adam, and Eve, and Moses. They're there with some frequency. Now, these comic strip Bible characters, of course, the comic strip writer has used the Bible stories reconstructed. The comic strip writer has enough, assumes enough of the understanding from the readership that the readers will get the joke. The punchline comes on the basis of that knowledge. The cartoonists have recentered or reformed the Bible stories like you would do a fixer upper house. Once inside the familiar tale, they knock down the walls, they pull up the carpet, they rearrange the light fixtures, and they redo the plumbing, all to suit their comic needs. According to the practice and the success of North America's comic strip writers, people have a basic understanding of what's in the Bible. We don't live in a biblically illiterate land. Everybody knows that Noah, I mean that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Everybody knows that Eve was tempted by a snake. Everybody knows that the ark was filled with two animals, two giraffes, two bears, two antelope, and so on. We know enough to get the joke. Comic strip writers don't need to comply with an accurate version of the biblical tale. Their job is to connect with the mind of the readers. Noah's Ark, therefore, always has the same shape. You know exactly what it looks like. That's Noah's Ark. The Genesis serpent is always a snake. The forbidden fruit is always an apple. And what does God look like? I know. I've seen him in the comic pages. He's a white man. He's about 75. He has a long white beard, and he has long flowing hair. Oh, yeah. And Jonah, have you seen Jonah's appearance in Farside, that single strip cartoon? There he is, Jonah, dripping wet, standing at his door of his home. Dripping wet, one, one pant leg gnawed up to the knee. There he stands, bedraggled, pop-eyed like this. And there's Mrs. Jonah to greet him. She's a heavy woman, and her fists are on her hips. And she's looking at him. She says, all right, Jonah, three days late and smelling like fish. What tail do I have to swallow this time? ha. <laughs> Well, this is kind of the Bible that we're all working with. But the same was true with the Sunday school material. How many of you remember any kind of rebuke against nationalism or racism that came out of a study of Jonah from Sunday school? Not, Mrs. not my, my third grade teacher, not Mrs. Mortensen. She didn't mention that. Whose sixth grade Sunday school class had any kind of discussion on the drunkenness and the sexual sin that followed Noah off the ark? How about Balaam and the, and the talking donkey? Every graduate of Sunday school knows that class. But how did any Sunday school student hear how that story ends? Does anybody know about the incident at Peor or how and why Balaam died? Not my Mrs. Mortensen. Oh, no. She was hanging cheery curtains over that text. She was giving it a new coat of fresh paint to kind of liven the atmosphere. She was locking doors. She was saying, don't go in there, she'd say. It's a real mess in there. Illiteracy? No. 
That's not the problem. It's more a case of what we do with the texts that we seem to know once we get inside. Comic strip writer, why do you do that? I'm doing it to get a laugh. Mrs. Mortensen, I did it for your own good. Uncle Carol, I was just messing with you, kid. (laughs) Brother Hardin, uh, never mind. But what's true of the Sunday school teacher, Uncle Carol, and the comic strip writer is true of us as well. I would like to take on this morning your understanding how you've been reading Luke chapter 15. I'm going to claim that your recreation is absolutely creative, heartwarming, passionate, but alien to the story that Luke has told. Because in your story, there is no sheep, no coins, no shepherd, no woman. There's a father who is clearly God. And there's a wayward son or daughter who is you. There's a party brewing for you. And the far country and the pig pen are in the safety of a distant background. And in the foreground, your father is approaching you. And as he is approaching you, your head is bowed in shame and you have your eyes closed. Actually, only one eye is closed and one eye is open. And you are eyeballing the gifts that are in your father's hands. There's a robe, there's a sandal, there's a ring. Ah. And as he approaches you, you hug, you embrace, and you put your head on his shoulder, and he puts his head on your your shoulder, and you are crying tears of joy, and he is crying tears of relief. And when we create for ourselves the story of the younger brother, the part of the story that we like the best is the detailed description of the gifts. Preacher, remind us of the gifts. Ah, yes. The robe is the robe of first quality. It will be assigned to those who come to the party of your father's acceptance. What about the sandal? The sandals. Slaves go barefoot. Only those in charge wear the shoes. Your father is showing you that you are now back in charge again. What about the ring? It's a signet ring, a symbol of authority. And the kiss. Tell us about the kiss. Ah, the kiss is a sign of reconciliation. And I might say that I, I would be amiss if I didn't add that it is very unusual in this society for an older man to run. Evidently, there are no boundaries to your father's love and acceptance of you. I did that way too slow because you are so far ahead of me. You've already done the translation. God has provided a new suit of clothes that fill your closet and spill out across your bed. And out in your driveway sits a brand new Jaguar, 7th Series, oval grill, forest green exterior, leather forest green interior. Go ahead, open the door and put your nose inside. Oh, I love the smell of a new Jaguar. Yeah. And our dinner tonight will begin with a French appetizer of French soup, rich roasted onion stock, and sherry wine topped with rye croutons and melted Swiss and Parmesan cheese. For the main course, we'll have sautéed beef tenderloin tips served on a bed of rice pilaf topped with a dark European buttered, oh my, I'm getting hungry just describing it. 
And the party, the party has all the people you've ever known. Your old friends, your enemies, everybody's there. Your aunts, your uncles, the whole family patting you on the back saying, Welcome home. Good to have you back. Hug, hug, hug. Pat, pat, pat. Oh, it's so satisfying. And that's how the tale that you've created in this text generally runs. And maybe we should have a caption underneath the film that you direct and that you star in. A caption that reads, based on a true story. Because this story that we've created is alien to the one that is in Luke's gospel. Oh, what we've done is passionate and creative. Yes, yes, yes. But it's a classic that we're working with. And we ought to build on a classic. You ought not mess with the classic. So let's start then with the frame of our story. This story of ours has a setting. It's part of a larger collection of stories that are preserved together by Luke. The the parable has a beginning, and the setting is this, that Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, even receiving them, the text said, text says, which may means he's hosting them, which causes the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to be absolutely riled. And as they smolder, the parable is told. I wonder who this is directed to. At first glance, these three parables of the lost coin, lost sheep, and lost son all tend to be together. Every one of them ends with, there is more joy in heaven. There is more joy in heaven. And the Father expresses his joy. But when the first two parables end with this word, there is more joy in heaven over one who repents. The second one, there is more joy in heaven over one who repents. When we get to our parable, the word repentance doesn't appear. Go ahead. Take a look. It's not there. What does that mean? Could it mean that the younger son doesn't repent? I said that, and you're struggling. You're resisting, aren't you? You're saying, I know this guy's got to catch an airplane. He's not going to talk all day. I don't care how long he talks. He would never convince me. My repentance is in verse 17. In verse 17, in the pig pen, that's when I came to my senses. You might have come to your senses in the pig pen, but you didn't repent. At least that's not what Luke said. Now, Luke, of course, didn't have television back in his day. He didn't have film. He didn't even have the cartoonist bubbles that let us know what the character is thinking. He would employ a different narrative tool that you might be familiar with from Shakespeare called a soliloquy, an interior monologue. It was a clever narrative device familiar to Luke's work all through Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And every time he has an interior monologue, a soliloquy, he introduces it this way. And he came to himself and he said. It's all through the Gospel. Do you remember the story of the rich fool? What happened there? Guy making money hand over fist. What did he do with that money? Luke tells it this way. He came to himself and he said, What am I going to do with all my money? I know I will build bigger barns for myself. Did he repent? No, just the opposite. Do you remember the story of the of the crafty steward. What was going on there? It was malfeasance. It was misappropriation of funds. He was doing something nasty. And he got caught red-handed. 
Luke tells it this way. And he came to himself and he said, what am I going to do? I'm too weak to work. I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know. I'll cut a deal with my master's creditors. Did he repent? No. That's why we didn't really like that parable. Do you remember the story of the unjust judge? What was going on there? Widow woman coming to him, asking for some protection. But Luke introduces him as a man who did not fear God nor respect humanity. And Jesus says he was he did not fear God or respect humanity. What happened there? Luke says it this way. He came to himself and he said, Lest this widow woman wear me out, I'm going to give in to the request. Did he repent? No, he did just the opposite. And in our story, Younger son in a far country, famine in the land, hungry, longing to feed himself with the pig's pods. What's he going to do? Luke says he decides in this fashion. He came to himself and he said, what am I going to do? My father's slaves have it better than this. And then he begins to construct his script. Repentance? No, it's a soliloquy that reveals nothing more than his moment of crisis, the younger son speaks to himself so that we can hear. Let's be honest. We don't like what we're hearing because we have so much at stake. I know. But Luke is asking for a whole different point of view. Luke is asking us who are listening to hear things from the perspective of the older brother. But for a moment, be honest. There have been times before this morning when you wondered about that younger brother's motives. Remember the time in Sunday school when somebody says, looks to me like he's being led by his stomach. Remember the time somebody said, or maybe it was you, it looks to me like the kid just ran out of options. That's right. This hungry, optionless son has just arrived home with scant evidence of repentance. You and I have a lot at stake, and I know how resistant you are to it. So one time I preached a sermon from this text, and all the way through, through the sermon I, I said, from the perspective of the older brother, from the perspective of the older brother, from the perspective of the older brother. And I sat down. And the elder got up and he said, thank you for your sermon, David. Now can't we all see this and appreciate it from the perspective of the younger brother? <laughs> so one time I got daring. One time I came to the, I was doing an interim in a congregation and I came up and I put my Bible down and I put my watch down and I moved it to the side. And I said, I'm going to speak from my heart this morning. I said, I want to talk about sin and I want to talk about sin that's permeating our community. In my neighborhood, I said, we have a, a, a couple that lives two door down, two doors down, and they have a girl. Her name's Lisa. And oh my goodness, the trouble she's gotten into. Teenage girl, but drugs and alcohol. And I went on to describe it. And then I said, nine months ago, she takes off for Chicago or someplace. And then she comes home this weekend on Friday. There's no rehab. There's no repentance. You know what they did? The parents are putting on a big party for her. Oh my goodness, they have balloons out there, red, white, and blue. Welcome home, Lisa. Big barbecue in the backyard smells wafting over to our house cars pulling up <laughs> and then a knock came on the door I tell the congregation it's Lisa's mother I open the door I say hello she says we want you to come to the party you and May come to the party 
I said, ah. She said, we thought she was dead, but she's come back. She's alive. I said, oh. She said, she was lost, but we found her. Please, come to the party. And I said, ah. And I stopped, and I said, the reason I've told you this tale. And then we launched into a sermon on the prodigal son. After the sermon was over, I'm out in the foyer, and a visitor that morning who had driven by my house to come to church approaches me, and he said, I drove by your house, David. Now, uh, which was the house? I didn't see any balloons. Which was the house where this Lisa lives? Then you need to come more often, get some good preaching under your belt, and you'd be able to pick up on this stuff. (laughs) But on Tuesday, I got a call from Judy, who was part of our small group. And she said, after church, David... Four of us went out for dinner, and two of us said, oh yeah, he went to the party. And two of us said, oh no, he didn't go to the party. Settle it for us. Did you go or not? I said, oh, Judy. I said, I just made that up. And before I could continue, she said, what? What else are you lying about up there in the pulpit? And the next Sunday, I'm not making this up, the next Sunday came, and I come to my pew where I always stood. And there next to me is the woman who always stood next to me, and she turns to me and she said, how was the barbecue? (laughs) And to save us all a lot of trouble, I just said, oh, it was fine. (laughs) But you are Canadians, (laughs) and you are inherently smarter (laughs) than the group that I usually work with, so I won't try that on you. Instead, what I would like to do is take you with me into your younger brother's room where his closet is filled with his new tailored clothes that are even spilled out across the bed. I want you to go over to the dresser. Do you see that yellow long receipt? Go over there and pick it up and see how much money your dad has spent on your brother. And then let's come into the kitchen where all the caterers are so beautiful and handsome, all dressed up. Mario, Mario's in charge of this banquet. Mario, come over here. Tell us how much money he spent on the younger son. And Mario looks in your eyes and he says, your father is a very generous man. Now let's go out into the driveway. Do you see that new Jaguar out there? Forest green exterior, forest green leather interior. Go ahead, open the door, put your nose inside, and you say, that smell makes me nauseous. Job asked, why do bad things happen to good people? The older brother asks, why do good things happen to bad people? And what about me? A preacher was invited, like me, to speak at a church. And he asked, where will you be in the Sunday school class when I arrive? And they said, well, we'll be at the story of the prodigal son. And so the Sunday arrived and the preacher stood up and he began the class with this fabricated tale. He said, once a man had two sons, and the younger son came to him and said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And so the father gave it to the son, and he went off to a far country where he squandered his his wealth on loose living. 
And so the father went out to the field where the older brother was laboring, and he came up to him and he said, Son, I want you to know how much I love and appreciate who you are and what you've done. You've never once disobeyed a command of mine. I think it's high time that we invite all of our friends for a big bash. I want to give you our new ring, some new sandals. i got a special robe designed just for you and the fatted ox. It's about time Louis slaughtered that to celebrate. And when he finished his fabricated tale, a woman in a whisper that was meant to be overheard said, that's how it should have been. Young man works for his family-owned towing company. He and his dad have spent their lives on the business. I asked the son, I say, you an only son, only child. He says, no, I got a brother out in California. He's an artist or a musician or something. I say, uh, you work long hours? He says, yeah, I work 70, 80 hours a week. I'm on call every other night. I put in, I work when I'm sick. I work when I'm well. I said, you happy? He said, oh, for the most part, except dad's going to uh, this summer share the profits that he's put aside from the business, give half to me and half to that brother out in California. He says, doesn't seem fair. And I would like to introduce you to a woman. She's only in her later 50s, but she could pass for at least a dozen years older because of what she's been through the last couple of years. She comes and she says, I have four siblings who are scattered across North America and a mother who took you ill two years ago. And we didn't want to put her in a nursing home, so mother came to stay with me. I put up all the financial means to keep mother alive and, and care for her. And I didn't hear a thing from my siblings for those last two years. And then last week, Mother passed away. And of course, for the funeral, they all came, which I expected. But what I didn't expect is what I heard when we gathered to hear the will read. And Mother said, I divide my estate among my children equally because I loved you all equally. And she says, just doesn't seem fair. You have good reason to resist going into this celebration party. You question their integrity. You question their baptism. You question their commitment. You question their sincerity. You, you question their repentance. And so there you are, out in the driveway. Will you go in or will you drive away? You lean against your car, which, by the way, is not a new Jaguar, and you look over at your brother's new car. Your keys are in your hand. Will you stay or will you go? You look up at the house with the music blaring and the laughter and the dancing and the joy inside, and out walks your father. And he comes up and he stands next to you, leaning against the car. And he puts his arm around your shoulder. And he says, Son, I want you to come in. Your brother, we thought he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost. We found him. And you look down at your keys, and you look back at the house, 
And then you look at your father square in the eyes. Will you go in? Will you go in? I think you will. Based on one condition. And the condition is this. You know that your brother deserves none of the grace that he's receiving. You know that. But did you also know that you deserve none of God's tender mercies that have come your way? You know that. You know that, don't you? Yeah. You'll go in. Let's stand and sing. I want to thank all of you for being here this morning, and certainly I want to thank David for sharing with us this weekend. Could we show him our appreciation for what he shared? David has to go. He mentioned, uh, you know, he's going to leave on a plane. To, well, he is. And so I need to go right now uh, with David, and we're going to run to the airport, and hopefully he'll still make his flight. I'm sure that will happen. Would you bow with me, please, please, as we close today? Thank you, everyone, for being here this morning. It's been a blessing. Uh, please, especially if you're a guest, uh, we'd love to have you come back. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and praise you today for the ways in which you have blessed us. Thank you for David sharing with us. Uh, and God, most of all, we just thank you for your grace. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us, Father, to appreciate so much not only what you've done for us, but what you've done for all men and women, the grace that you extend to them. Father, we pray that you would help us in our lives to enter in, to go to the house, to acknowledge your grace, to let it dominate our lives. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. God bless you.